Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Well, I woke up, you were gone. If you can measure our relationship by TV, right. to So, uh, today we'll finish up uh, the sort of implicit procedural stuff. We'll talk about working memory, which doesn't take too long. And then we'll, uh, I'll tell you about the test and you can ask any questions if you have them. Because um, that's, you know, that's in two days, right? Next class, there's the first test. We were talking about uh, super memory, the idea that can you improve memory? And yeah, you can. Typically what you're improving is sort of procedural, implicit stuff. In other words, it's practice. If you view memory as a skill, you can improve episodic type memories too, but that involves... Uh, generally coding, right? That involves retrieval cues, that kind of thing. What we're talking about here, like the case of Rahan, the guy, or Rajan, whatever his name is, uh, guy that knows 38,000 digits of pi, who's currently attempting to remember 100,000 digits of pi. Uh, before he started doing this, his digit span was at the high end of what people know uh, of, of, of what people can do. But it wasn't ridiculous. Like, it was 15, which is very high. Most people, it's less than that. But it was pretty high. And now it's like 150, uh, which is bizarre. Like, that's nobody, well, not nobody. He has a digit span like that. Um, when he was tested, it was pretty clear it was a matter of chunking, because when you would ask him what the 43rd, uh, sorry, the 14,434 digit of pi was, what he did is he basically found that chunk, right? Because he would then be able to mention, he would very easily know the other numbers around it, but not numbers that were further away. He could do those, but they would take more time. Okay? So he's remembering it in chunks. The same way that a chess expert, a grandmaster chess player, remembers a chessboard. And that's the big difference. I mean, there's a skill level difference, obviously, but if you take a really good chess player and a world-class chess player and show them pictures of chess boards, the world-class player is much, with shorter time can much more easily remember where chess pieces are. The funny thing is, you're going to be better than him at remembering chess pieces that are in positions that are impossible. So if both your bishops are on black, which can't be, you're going to, you're going to have trouble with that. Or sorry, you, you have the problem, not nearly as a problem as, as, as Gary Kasparov would. Um, so it's really all about chunking, and I mentioned, you know, expert athletes, and you hear about people talking about how hockey players can see the ice, about how basketball players can see the floor, that kind of thing. And they, most of them actually don't see any better. There is some evidence, though, that uh, expert cricket, cricket batsmen actually have a bigger occipital lobe than you would expect. Uh, and that's likely due to the fact that well, who knows what came first? I saw a talk on that years ago. I asked the guy if you never talked to NHL goalies, and he said they won't talk to me. They just won't talk to me because they don't want to know. Superstitious loss, right? But cricket batsmen do. Actually, they're uh, a bit. Now, all that said, it's, it seems to me that it's about chunking. It's just like when you play a game and you're used to playing that video game. You know where stuff is without having to see it. For, uh, it's, it's pretty quick. I think I mentioned the idea that if you're playing an online shooter, you know the maps, even though you probably couldn't draw them for me. Right? Um, well, how would we do this? Well, the first thing is we put stuff into long-term memory quickly. So the two-score, this sort of classic two-score model, primary and secondary memory, short-term and long-term memory, it's a useful distinction. Um, the retrieval techniques are better. And this is just chunking. That's all that is, right? Some of this will happen just out of dumb luck. Some of it will happen if you get to view it as a skill and you practice and you get better at storing and retrieving things. Interesting thing with uh, Rajan, I've now pronounced his name three different ways. One of them is bound to be correct. <coughs> words, list of words, he's no better than any of us. You know, he'd be right in the middle, we'd be able to pick him out. Then we did digit span and he'd kick the crap out of all of us. Right, but if we give him a list of words, he'd be no better than any of us. Well, he would be better than probably half of us, or worse than half of us. He'd be right in the middle, just normal. 
but he's learned how to chunk numbers. And he's learned how to retrieve from that. Memory gets faster with practice. It's a skill. It's a skill. Right? And I think you guys even all know this. When you study stuff, you actually can retrieve it more quickly. You're going to be better on a test if you study rather than if you don't, even if you know the material perfectly, right? Even if you've totally, you're at the point where you can't do any better, you just look at it, oh, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that. You know, like your last night of studying should be like before a test. But if you haven't studied it all and you still know it all, you're not going to recall it as quickly. Right? And again, that's just practice. Students have asked me before, how can you remember names of papers by their author in their year? Because they do it every freaking day. It just happens. Right? So, some conclusions then about this. Basically, if you do want to improve your memory at all, it's practicing. It's hard work. It's studying, basically. There's a reason that NHL hockey players still practice hockey. They're all pretty good. They kind of know what they're doing. But you go watch a Pittsburgh Penguins practice and Sidney Crosby is skating around pylons. Right? Wayne Gretzky practiced shooting pucks for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a day from the time he was four years old. There's a reason he became the best hockey player in the world. It probably had something to do with his genetics, too. This stuff tends to be implicit. A wonderful question, again, uh, a great I, I talked about the Gretzky quote, go where the puck is, the puck's going to be, not where it is. In about 1986 or so, he scored a goal against the Calgary Flames where he shot the puck. The goal was like that. That much room was being given. Okay? About two inches wide. He shot the puck and in the air. It went on its side and went between the goalie and the goalpost and they won the game. And he was asked after the game, how did you do that? He said, well, that was all he gave me. That was the only part of the head I could see. He didn't say, well, I did this, and I did this with my wrist. He just said, matter-of-factly, well, that's where, the, you know, that's where I could see the net, so I shot the puck there. It's implicit. He couldn't tell you how he did it, but he did it. Right? Now, could he break it down? Probably. Yeah, he probably could. But he isn't thinking that way on the ice. Or wasn't, it was a play. Um, the interesting thing about this stuff is these things are retained after injury. Right? So we know, for example, with HM, he was able to improve uh, his mirror tracing ability, even though he had a, a surgery, in this, in this case, nonetheless, an injury. A KC, after an actual injury from a motorcycle accident, can learn new associations. He doesn't remember learning. Right? So this is, which shows I think it's implicit, and it shows that there's a difference between implicit and explicit memory. All right, questions about that stuff before we move on to working memory? Which is there. Which is there. Fine, what are we doing? Ah. Okay. Perfect timing, because this one isn't too long today. We'll probably have some time. I'll talk about the test after. Um, the Brown and Peterson technique, I actually posted on the CMS, Peterson and Peterson 1959. Take a look at it, it's a classic paper, it's a very simple to understand paper. The nice thing about it is that they were putting, having people put uh, trigrams, constant valve constant trigrams, like into, uh, well they just memorize them, right? They give them a list and then they have them recall them. And then they showed the classic thing, the recency effect, just like we know them. And then we got people that count backwards from 999 by threes for 20 seconds. 20 seconds. And it went from people being able to recall at 60, 70, 80% down to 20%. Why? Because the only things that were available now were the stuff that would move from short-term memory, or as we call it today, working memory, to long-term memory. The stuff that was, would have been sitting in short-term memory, 
or again, as we call it today, working memory, was gone. It was replaced with doing mental arithmetic. And that's called the Brown and Peterson technique, because at the same time, Brown came up with the same idea. Peterson and Peterson 59 is probably the classic. It's the classic, though. It's the one that everybody started with. And then uh, Brown had some stuff as well. So it's called the Brown and Peterson phenomenon, for effect. Procedure. Call it any of those, I guess. And we use this all the time today. Distractor tasks like this are always used to get stuff out of short term memory. We use it. Uh, I was telling you guys, one of the ones that I like to use is here's a map of the world, name all the countries. People take it seriously, first of all, because they think it's going to look stupid if they can't name countries. And immediately they're doing all this stuff, and, and you give them, say, five minutes doing that, and they can't remember a thing. It's great. So then you're only getting stuff that's in long term memory. You also get a good laugh out of people saying things like countries, luncheon, Europe, Mexico, but it's written on Brazil, you know, things like that. This is fun. And you wait for the future, and you throw those out, of course. What they did is they prevented rehearsal. What do we do? What do you do when I, when I give you, and so rarely today do we actually give each other phone numbers anymore. It used to be this wonderful example. Now what do I do? I send you a contact over Messenger, of some messaging program, and you just add it to you. I don't know my wife's cell phone number. My wife's cell phone number is call Isabel's iPhone, please, and it calls her. I, I honestly don't know it. It starts with 705. That's all I got. I know my daughter's because I actually gave her a mnemonic to learn it, which didn't help her much because it was the number of two hockey players. It worked perfectly for me because it was actually for me. But I, don't, I usually don't even know my own phone number at home. You know, you call for a pizza. Hey, what's your phone number? Uh, 705. Uh, and the 705, you're doing that to kill time because no one right here is a different area to cover it. So we used to give each other phone numbers and... When you're being given a phone number, what do you do? You repeat it to yourself until you put it into your phone. Right? So if you say, what's the number at the university? And I said 949-2301. You'd be like 949-2301, And finally, 949-2301, 949-2301. Yeah. You rehearse it. You may say it out loud. You may actually you know, move your lips. Or you may just be rehearsing it in your head. I don't know why I'm doing that because you can't. actually doesn't show up in recording. But I'm thinking 949-230. So forgetting a short-term memory is very rapid without any processing. If we can stop the processing, the processing here, what we want to call a control process, is rehearsal. Without it, which is the sort of classic one we use, your memory, your short-term memory decays 20 seconds. 18, sorry, 18 seconds. We, you can do it in five. You can get stuff can go in five seconds if you haven't really played with it at all. Within 20 seconds, it's gone. You can basically wipe short-term memory by having you do the Brown and Peterson technique. You can have it, it just go, it's gone, everything's gone. Right? Or have people in countries or whatever. Right? So it can be something that takes a lot of thinking. I've used name all Canadian provinces, their capitals, start from east, go west. That usually works within about five seconds. It's gone, it seems. Uh, but even just something simple, mental arithmetic, counting backwards from 999 by threes, that's actually pretty easy because it's a multiple of three. So it's really 999, 996, 993, 900. That's not that hard. Yeah, you all think I'm Rain Man or something from doing that, right? But it's really pretty simple. You know, it's like, it's like counting backwards by twos. It's not that hard. Yet even doing that will have to do, do the trick. By threes is harder. I've liked by 17s from 10,000. That's something no one's ever counted backwards by 17s. So yes, you forget stuff really quickly. Right? How many times has this happened to you? You're having a conversation with somebody, you, something else catches your interest just for a brief moment, and you have, the person has to repeat completely the sentence they just said to you. Happens all the time, right? Hey, squirrel, and then you come back. Johnny object. This really supports the classic two-store model. And a lot of stuff we've talked about so far in the course has. Right? The Atkinson-Schiffer type of model, long-term and short-term being separate kinds of memory. Yeah, I know that it doesn't mention sensory register. When you say two-store, should it be three? We kind of ignore that. So that's the two-store model is Atkinson-Schiffer. But a lot of different memory models have two, two stores. 
semantic, episodic, uh, procedural, declarative. Right? There's a lot of times where we distinguish between two kinds of mental. But the classic two-store model is Atkins and Schiffer. And this supports it. Because right? with doing Brandon Peterson, we can actually take away the stuff that's in short term. The stuff that's made it to long term isn't removed. Right? Okay, so short term and long term memory. Uh, I also posted the Miller and the magic number plus or minus, 7 plus or minus 2, which is a, a wonderfully classic paper. Uh, and I posted that as well, link to it on the CMS. So take a look at that. Uh, George Miller was a smart guy. And he found that the capacity of short-term memory was seven items, plus or minus two, some people as low as two, some people as high as nine. So, and this is shown to us, well, not this per se, but the idea of having different capacity is shown to us when we do free recall of people, we give them a list of words, we don't use constant, about constant, trigrams anymore, we use words. Used to be what you did is you found a list of words in a book. It was like papers published literally that showed the frequency of certain words, and you would get equal frequency words. What we do now is you Google a list of words, and you can find things, and it's all documented. It's really easy. Um, so we don't really worry about making up these kind of controls to do anymore. We can use regular world words. Um, we get a serial position effect, which I've talked about today many times, which is the idea that you remember the stuff from the beginning of the list and the end of the list, beginning of the list. Uh, so if we had probability of recall in a group, right? And so that's one. And then we have uh, item order, I guess. Just item. Say one to ten. The first one's remembered quite well. The second one tends to be remembered quite well. Some people, even the third one's remembered quite well. Then we get over here around the eighth, the sort of the ninth, and the tenth are remembered quite well, and the ones in the middle are horrible. That's the serial position effect. And that's what we use free recall. And what people do, by the way, the neat thing is, the first thing they tell you are the ones at the end of the list, the ones that are still in short-term memory. Invariably, people don't go back to those couplers that are made to long-term memory. No one does it well. Yeah, people do. But it's really rare. People tend to recall, if you've got 10 items, 10 right away, because he just said it. You don't do the 22nd Peterson, the Reverend Peterson thing. You go, blah, 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 tree. Recall the place, first thing you say is tree, because it's right there. What about an hour after? An hour after the, the, premise, the, the recency effect's gone. So we the primacy effects the low. Yeah. Now there's some decay. We just do remember though the more recent ones. No. At the, it would actually look like a. It would look like flat. a yeah flat. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because especially because frankly what you've done at that point is you're doing sort of Brown and Peterson in nature because people have the rest of an hour for other crap to get in their memory. Right. For those of you who didn't know it before, what's the university phone number again? Okay, how many of you didn't know that anymore? Just disappeared, yeah, and I said it just a little while ago. I've known it for a while. Yeah, that's the problem, if you knew it. If you'd never known it. But I am good with phone numbers. Yeah, see, that's a skill. Sadly, becoming a useless skill now. Yeah. It pisses me off. Yeah, it's like my ability to do mental arithmetic. It's really. I, I can do square roots in my head, but it's not really that useful anymore because everybody has a calculator out of it. Not even at a party, right? It's hardly useful at all yeah. at a party, yeah. yeah. Chicks don't dig that. <laughs> not that I, you know, I'm totally happy. I'm not looking for women or men, anybody. I'm very happy. Do you think you'd know it if you were given it? Yeah, if I, if I was given it yeah. again, I would know it. I'd so yeah, pick it out. That memory is so cool. Like you know, <laughs> you know it, but you don't know it. Yeah, it's like I'm starting to picture the numbers, and there's just like so fuzzy, I can't quite yeah. make them out. Yeah. 
So the serial position effect shows that we have short-term and long-term memory. This is one of the beautiful things with the two-store model. As much as it's, frankly, the world's more complicated than the two-store model, but so much of the data are explained in the two-store model that it still has its, its use, and we still teach it to you. I mean, people have said, well, why do you teach us Atkins and Schiffer? And frankly, the world's more complicated than that. Because it's a good way to organize data and understand it. Um, the first item is going to get more rehearsal. Right? Why is that? Well, if I give you a list of words, the first one is clock. You come every five seconds. The first thing you do is go clock, 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 clock. You say it to yourself. It's rehearsal. The last item is still a short-term memory. And this is not uncommon, where the first and the last are done, and the ones in the middle are completely gone. If I make the list longer than 10, if I'm putting it up in there 30 or 40, you got the first one and the last one, and that's about it. You might get the first and the second and the last two, but nothing else. Right? The middle, you're no good at that. Yeah, you might remember the odd one. Could happen. But they don't get any... They don't get any rehearsal in the middle ones. Because I've given you four or five items already, and you're trying to rehearse all those. Clock, wall, tree, lawn, water, clock, clock. Clock comes up every single time you rehearse that. Okay. You change that retention interval, as I said, kind of like the might last, and you get rid of the recency effect. So the retention interval changes, you pull it out a minute, even without even doing a Brown Peterson, you get a recency effect. Or so you'll remove the recency effect. And the longer it is, like Mike said, what about an hour? It's gone. Like there, it's totally gone. Would it be any different? Say there, there was a 20 word list. Yep. If you told them it was two lists and you split it into two 10 word lists, do you think that if you give me a break in the middle, yeah, give them a break in the middle. Yeah, uh, red stuff. Okay. Give them a break in the middle, they'll have a privacy effect for two lists. Yeah. Because they've got time. So is that a better, like, more efficient way to study it? Well, in some respects, yeah. I mean, in fact, frankly, mass versus distributed practice is a classic thing. Distributed practice, we all know, at least you all should know, that you should study in little bouts for two weeks before a test or a week before a test. Study for half an hour a night. Right on each thing, plan all your study. That works, and that works if you're a human, and that works if you're a rat learning a maze. That works no matter what species you are. You know, some of these processes are pulled up throughout the history of evolution because the systems probably work pretty similar. Yeah, so I mean, of course that would work, but the recency effect would still be gone in both of those. Depending, you would not get a recency effect in the first list. The second list, you'd still have it because it's still sitting there, unless you give them. A little retention interval, or how to use some mental arithmetic. The nice thing is, the mental arithmetic or whatever doesn't have to be complicated. Counting backwards by threes is not that hard. You might think, well, I don't count backwards that often. If I had you count by twos forward from two to fifty, you'd be screwed. Because as much as that's almost an automatic thing, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, while you're doing that, that stuff's now sitting in short-term memory. It's got a limited capacity, and it just boots other stuff out. There are there's a, a small number of slots in there. Right? And there's basically the most of a set. Excuse me. Right? Oh, I too much. So what happens is, New items interfere with old items. New items interfere with old items. So later items get tougher to process. Right? And of course, unless they're only still available, they're still available in short-term memory. We can make them unavailable. And you can do this. It used to be, again, that now we just put phone numbers right into our phones or someone just literally sends us their contact information. But it used to be a lot of fun to use psychology's knowledge for evil and not good. And people would say, what's your phone number? And you'd say 949-2301. And it's the person who's rehearsing it to themselves. Just yell numbers at them. 731-496-11. And they go, yeah, very funny. Very funny, psych major. What's the phone number again? And you know what anything you can do? It doesn't even have any numbers. So you say 949-2301. And you can battle people to walk to a payphone. 
right? Because they'd be rehearsing all the ways. They're in a bar. You, you follow them, just yelling things like orange, chair, football, wall, light. They go, oh, come on. Do it twice. The third time, you get a punch in the face, <laughs> right? But it doesn't matter what the items are. You can be yelling anything at them. Or just ask them a simple question. How old are you again? Oh, the phone number's gone, isn't it? Right? Because you have limited capacity. There's so many fewer times you can do that now again because we all have phones in our pockets. And the harder the task, though, the more interference. So if I make you do something like this myth arithmetic, if I make you name some countries, you're going to get more interference because you can bring more, if something's harder by definition, you need more processing power, right? You get to bring more stuff into short-term memory. Remember, short-term memory isn't just, it doesn't just have the stuff that's happening right now in front of you in there, it's also bringing that old stuff back in. So if I ask you, I give you a list of digits, and then I say, by the way, what is the capital of Cambodia? Yeah, uh, Cambodia. Uh, geez, I Cambodia. Uh, yeah, okay. Unless you're kind of a freak about world capitals, you know, put on that. I was a pretty odd little boy. I read an atlas until it fell apart, so I had a new one. I was a very strange little boy. Right, or you just get people to just, just say that. Oh, what's the central limit theorem again? That's a fun one. All right. So interference is really important in short-term memory. And this is why you get destroyed. You have limited processing resources. Okay. Rehearsal, it's got to be acoustic, right? It's got to be what it sounds like. It's got to be what it sounds like. Because when I say to you, remember the word clock, you go clock, 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 clock. You don't go timepiece that moves and then there may be Switzerland. <laughs> right? You don't do that, do you? You say clock, 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 clock. You don't think of the meaning of it. It might come up. It might be my little picture. It might come up, right? Now Pavio would say dual coding. There you go. It's also images. Ah, it didn't have to be though. You look at people do letter confusion. This is very cool. And we, so we know it's acoustic and the what we might call the surface properties of a word because if I give you the word think of a good one here. Cat and cut. Okay. If I do that, they'll interfere with each other and you'll confuse cat and cut. So I want you to recall the word instead of being free recall. You might remember cut before cat instead of cat before cut. They're both in the list, by the way, of course, right? But I can make I can confuse you because I'm making you because you think about the, the surface features of the word. And the way it sounds is one of the surface features, right? It's not a meaning thing. So one of the other, like, so the cut and cat, they both have the C and the T. Just the middle phoneme is different, middle vowel. And you're going to confuse those. So we, we can show that the way you're remembering this is by these surface features. It's not the semantic part, not the meaning. Remember I talked about president and resident versus president and king. You don't confuse president and king. You confuse president and resident, though. And they're almost the same word. Right? This is cool. People will confuse V with B, but not F with E. Well, V and B sound a hell of a lot more like than F and U. And pho, by the way, is delicious. It's a good thing. It's a kind of Vietnamese soup. <coughs> but everybody calls it pho when they don't know what it is. They spell P-H-O, but it's pho. So now you've learned something today. 
I'm obsessed with that part of the world that I don't visit, Cambodia, and I always talk about the capital of Vietnam. I want to go to Vietnam and eat. That's really all I want to do there. That's why I hang out with Anthony Bourdain, travel the world, get hammered, and eat food. I keep thinking we should give him an honorary degree just so I could hang out with him. He would want to hang out with me because I'm not, well, I'm cooler than most people around here. Damn it, everybody else would faint pray. Maybe they would faint prayers. But Anthony look alike, don't they? The, the most similar letters, not D and O, I guess, but F and E look just the same. Capitals. V and B don't look alike at all, but they sound alike. So what we do is we, get, we, we find items where we have either V and B confusion potentially or F and E confusion, and what do people, where's the confusion show up? Right here. So we know the letter confusion that happens is going to happen a lot more with things that sound alike than things that look alike. That's, you know, super clever. One of the reasons I like this kind of stuff is, you know, you can't ask people how they're encoding things in short-term memory because you just, it's, it's an accessible. You don't know how you do it. But we can design very clever little experiments like this. There you go. Confusion with semantic, just like president, resident versus king and president. Semantically dissimilar, but acoustically similar. And that's where you get your confusion. Nobody confuses cat and lion. Cat and cut might get. But especially um, vowel and vowel. Which I don't think are semantically similar. Perhaps on your planet they are. So this tells us that it's an acoustic process. And we know this. Let's now, now we, we don't know it until it's told to us, but then when we think about it. How do you do it? You rehearse. You say the word to yourself in your mind's ear, right? That's what you do. If I'm giving you a list and I'm asking you to recall it, the first thing you do is you repeat it to yourself. You might even move your lips. But even if you don't, you think of what the word sounds like. It's basically what's rehearsal with silent repetition. You can have people do it out loud if you want, but it's silent repetition. Now, how are you supposed to measure silent repetition? John Watson and B.F. Skinner might ask you. And frankly, that's a good question. Well, what you do is you get people to do it out loud. So Rhymus 1971 does a classic experiment. It's very straightforward. List of items. What I want you to do, though, instead of saying things to yourself, I want you to say, I want you to say anything you want, but I want everything to be out loud. And what do people do? Exactly what we think. Clock, 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 clock. That's what people do. It's funny, it took that long for someone to figure out, why don't we just ask them to do it out loud? Because we knew about rehearsal probably about 1958, 59, right? Brown Peterson tells us this. It takes another 11 years before someone says, why don't we just ask them? Let's make him do it out loud. Right? He recorded the rehearsal. Perhaps this is why we need to record it. And recording techniques were a lot easier in 1971 than they were in 1959. Big reel-to-reel -reel thing in 1971 still, but nonetheless. And here we do. Take a look at the people that rehearse more and take a look at their recall. And guess what? The people that rehearse more at their recall. This really shouldn't surprise anyone. And this is what everyone thought. But this is the case that actually shows that it's true. Because most rehearsal, again, Brad Peterson are making you say that out loud. They make you count backwards out loud. But they're not making you do this out loud. I'm just says, just do it out loud. Just, I want you to do, just say anything you want, repeat it, just got to do it into this mic. And exactly what we would find with the serial position effect, um, the most recent in the rehearsal list is the first one you recall. And what's that going to be? That's going to be the last item. 
if you're doing standard serial position research, which is exactly the technique that was used. What's going to be recalled is the very last item. So I start with clock, and a bunch of things in the middle. The last one says tree. People do, by the way, this is what people try to do. The first word's clock, and they go clock, 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 clock. The next word's cup, and go clock, cup, clock, cup, clock, cup. And then you say the next word is light. Clock, cup, light, clock, cup, light, clock, clock, cup. Right? And then we give them a bunch of other, and eventually gets to the point where you've, oh, all seven slots are taken up. Right? So the next word is hair. Clock, cup, light, hair. Clock, cup, light. And then next, the next thing is these are coming every four or five seconds. Suddenly it's like, okay, clock's in now. They go like light cut hair, shirt, they like, you know, you get the tree, you go tree, you go, oh, it's a, please recall tree. Because the last thing you rehearsed, right? It's the most recent in the list you're trying to rehearse. The cool thing was, different people are going to be a little bit different, right? Everybody's going to be a little, you get the same sort of tissue effect, but everybody's going to do it slightly differently. So maybe the last, last the second last item might have been, uh, I have to find the items though so hard. Floor. So it goes floor, tree. And the person's going at the end, floor, 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 floor. Because they've, they've decided, you know what, I can't keep all these things in here. I'm just going to repeat what I can and move along. So they just repeat items as they come. Then they get the tree, and they go floor, tree, floor, tree. Because they still, then floor's going to move into the living room and tree. So that when there are differences like that that depart from the serial position effect a little bit, the sort of standard thing, it's because of it's the most recent thing in the list that you're rehearsing. It's a very clever experiment. Very clever. There's always a bite, isn't there? It may not be the recency that's the most important thing in short-term memory. It may be the things when the items are more discriminable. In other words, when an item that's more different than the rest of them. Okay? There's an effect in uh, memory called the von Restorf effect. It's spelled just like you expect. Von, V-O-N, Restorf, R-E-S-T-O-R-F-F, von Restorf. And von Restorf was a German psychologist, you can guess the name von Restorf. And he found that if you gave people a list of words, and nine of the items were in one category, and this is semantically, by the way, and the tenth item, I mean, you put it anywhere on the list, but I'm just saying a nine and a tenth one, it's in a different kind of category. So if I give you ten, nine kinds of furniture and one fruit, you're going to remember fruit better than anything. You know why? It's easy to discriminate a fruit from a piece of furniture. Right? So he's doing the experiments like chair, table, bed, because he's German. Orange, stool, dresser. First thing you remember was orange. And why are you speaking in a ridiculous accent? Why are you speaking just German, sir? Because I want to be have a good imitation of me native in my life. <laughs> so the, what does this show? This shows actually that it's not just acoustic, doesn't it? Because if it's about a semantic category of some sort, it's also about the meaning. So it might be these early things then aren't just recalled acoustically. Clock, our, our number one item is clock, right? It may be in fact that you elaboratively process. That you don't think, like I said, timepiece made in Switzerland, a whole bunch of things that aren't, uh, uh, but everything but the word clock. But you might process in a little more detail and think about the meaning a little bit because you have time to. When a word comes to mind. Right? If I give you the word bear, B-E-A-R, that kind of bear. You immediately think about bears. Right? Can't help that. But if I start, you know, and if that's the first word in the list, maybe that happens, actually. So the first word, clock, you think about clocks. I start giving you another bunch of words every five, four or five seconds, what's going to happen? Suddenly, now, you don't have time to think about what the words mean. So in fact, it might be that We process it, what's called elaboratively, and we elaborate on it. Levels of processing. 
We process it more deeply and we process it, process it semantically. So this has been thought of as actually an argument against the two-store model. That instead it's just deeper processing, not de uh, different kinds of memory. Debbie, you look at your question. Yeah, um, the deeper processing, would it be because more you've got like now a mental image of the word that you, you're looking at? That would be something you could think of would be mental image, but I mean, what it really means is just what the meaning of it itself, and a lot of us think of the images of things, sure. Because I know when I just clock itself, all of a sudden like hands or whatever. No, in fact, I think most of us imagine, when I just say bear, most of us imagine a bear. Yeah. Right? Um, Maybe but imagining a bear, you have to know what a bear is. Right? Yeah, you just have to know what a bear is to imagine a bear. So you still are thinking about the meaning of the word. Right? And it may be the case that all the stuff, the imagery that Alpavio talked about for all these years is simply just more elaborate processing. It's thinking about what a word means. Because to imagine what it looks like, you have to know what it means. Short-term short memory has been replaced by the idea of working memory. We still say short-term memory for short-term store. If there's one thing I can teach you in this class, it's that when people say they have a short-term memory problem, they're almost always wrong because they don't mean stuff that decays in five or eight seconds. They mean stuff that happened an hour ago. That's not short-term memory. Drives me nuts. I have a problem with short-term memory. Really? It's funny. You seem to be able to hold a conversation. Your digit span seems normal. Let me test it. You just not encoding things properly. I can be such a dick. I'm the walking embodiment of a little bit of knowledge could be a dangerous thing. So we don't say short-term store, short-term memory, because it doesn't seem to have the idea of all these control processes coming in, of rehearsal, of perhaps semantic encoding, elaborate encoding. Let's talk about something that, that it's where we work on items. That's why it's a better term, working memory. Okay? So working memory is different than short-term store. Short-term store, you think, is for short-term memory. Seven slots... Some of those are chunks, right? So you could, like a phone number is just usually two chunks, 949 to 301. That's fine. And then something else goes in there and it knocks something in. Working memory says first you have a central executive. And what it's doing is it's, it's kind of like the CPU, if you want to use a computer analogy. It's making decisions about what the process when. Below it, and if you want to draw a model, you have a central executive. Now below it, you've got an area called the phonological loop. What are we doing here? Well, it sounds like it's looped and it's phonological. That's where rehearsal happens. What else could it be? A visual spatial sketch pad. What in the hell is that? Well, it's kind of like a map. Where I've been, where I'm going. How do we know these things are separate? Because I can get you to do navigation, walk around a room, right? walk around the university campus, get from one place to another, or even tell me how to get from one place to another and it doesn't affect things in phonological movement. So they're separate sort of subsystems. Um, Sternberg, <laughs> this is a very cool term. When we search phonological loop, how would you think we would do this? Well, I would think Personally, if I was to guess, I would imagine we did it in serial. In other words, all at once. Oh, sorry, in parallel. All at once. I would say we look at the whole list and say, is that item in there or not? Because a lot of things, and those of you guys that take a brain behavior with me know about this, human memory or human nervous systems are parallel. It's a parallel processing system. It has to be. 
So I would think that if I give you a list of seven items, and I ask you if and Sternberg used um, numbers, like digits. I said, is that in the list? I would think we would say, yep, yes or no, by looking at the whole list at the same time. First thing I can tell you is we don't do that. We actually do it in serial. Now, maybe that's okay, because it's probably only seven items. So digit span, whatever. If I give you a list of items, the times change depending on how long the list is. So that tells us it's not in parallel, right? It takes longer to find an item in a long list of, in a longer list of uh, items than it does in a shorter list of items. Oh, these reaction time numbers, by the way, these are measured in tenths of a second. Like, it's small, but it's, it's statistically significant. So do you see that so far? I changed the, num the, number, the length of the list from, say, 3 up to, say, 10. And the longer the list, the longer it takes for you to recall the item. So the first thing we know is, and by the way, these are all give you at once, like 621943, that I say was, was for it. And you take longer if I say 234. Because that's a list of three items versus a list of whatever it was, six of you. That shows you that we do it in, in, in serial. The question then is, do we, is our search, and this is where Sternberg's brilliant. First of all, that experiment's pretty brilliant, but it's also pretty brilliant if I say, I don't know if the search is exhaustive or not. In other words, if I give you a list of 10 items, does it always take the same amount of time? Or does it change if the item was the first item, the second item, the third item, the fourth item? We would think for efficiency's sake, what would we do? If it's the first item, the reaction time should be less than if it's the third item, less than if it's the fifth item, and finally it should be longest if it's the last item I gave you. And remember, he's presenting these all at once. So I was actually doing it, presenting them serially. He presents them all at once to you very quickly. On like a screen. Well, it's called the tachistoscope. It shows something for a twentieth of a second. We would do it with a computer now. There used to be a very expensive piece of equipment we had like that. But you know what? That's not what you do. He's looking at yes and no responses. Is it there or is it not? Yes, no. So it's for there. Yes. It's for there. No, depending. Okay? People, by the way, are very good at this. You'd be surprised how good you'd be at this. You show up something exceedingly quickly, literally that fast, like snap of a finger fast. And then I say, seven. And you go, Yes, because second is there. You're really good at this. People don't make a lot of mistakes. But I would think that if it's earlier in the list, more to the left, because we read from left to right, that we should recall it, we should give our yes or no, we should give our yes response more quickly. No responses should always take a long time, because we have to go through every one of them. Yes responses shouldn't take a long time depending on where they are in the list. Except that we know that we do it serially, and we actually do it exhaustively, which is counterintuitive. In other words, if I say it's seven on the list, and it's the first number, it takes just as long for you to say yes as it does if seven is the last number, the one all the way to the right. It's exactly the opposite of the way I would think it would work. I would think it would be parallel. But parallel would be exhaustive. But if we get it serially, I would think, well, it seems that we would stop after we got to the yes or the no. We would just keep going until the end and then say yes or no. But that's what we do. It's crazy. Now, evolutionarily, I doubt that makes such a huge difference. And it's probably a simpler system for our nervous system to run. So it probably runs that way. I guess that's, that's called a just-so story. By the way, it was a new story at home. Um, I'm not really... It's just so counterintuitive. The other part of it is great. I, you know, I get it. It's serial. That's okay. Because it's quick. 
But the idea that we do it exhaustively to me is very strange. Very, very strange. But that's the, that's the data show that. And that's brilliant work. That's some of the stuff that made me want to be an internal psychologist. Okay. Yes. So you keep on going through the list. Yep. Even when you're done. Yep. It's like continuing to look for something after you found it. That's exactly what you're doing, except you're continuing to look for it in short term memory after you found it. Okay. But it's always the last thing you look. Yeah, you keep going. Okay. Yeah, keep going. It's exactly like that, honestly. It's like you can't find car keys, you find them all, you gotta keep looking because they look everywhere. Right. Yeah. Except we do it. We do this in, in you know, tenths of a second yeah. instead of in hours, right? So, like I said, the effect on us is probably the survival effect. It's probably not so big that it matters, and it's probably an easy thing to wire. I don't know. That's just a guess. I have no idea. I mean, it may be that our digit span or our number of items we can hold is something special about humans. And this is guess. I'm totally riffing. And this evolved from something a long time ago that had, could only hold two things, or one. And one versus two is not a big difference. But now when you can have a digit span of, say, 15 or 12 or 9, it's a lot. But it's a lot in tenths of a second. So it's pretty cool. So we've got these, this model, this multiple components model of working memory has the phonological loop, visual spatial sketch pattern, uh, abstract semantic knowledge, and procedural knowledge are in it. So it's a, it's a model of semantic memory, uh, sorry, of, of working memory that has phonological loop, we get that, that's clock, 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 clock. Visual spatial sketch pad, that's where am I going, where have I been, and how am I going to get there? We've got semantic knowledge, well, if I <coughs> abstract semantic knowledge. If I ask you to do a math problem, you have to know how to add. So you've got to kind of load the adding program. And this doesn't take long, but you can do it. Or you have to know how to read. Or you might have to just bring in semantic knowledge in general. Like, when I ask you what the capital of Vietnam is, you say Hanoi. Right? That's got to go somewhere. So that's a whole different kind of store, or different sort of subsystem in, in, in working memory. And then procedural knowledge. If I'm getting you to write these things down, you have to have the how do I write program loaded. And central executive is kind of like the CPU that's saying, you do this, you do this, now do that, now do that. And you might think this all sounds like a big pile of crap, because it sounds overly complicated and a little silly, except we can dissociate these. We can affect, what that means is we can use experiments and affect one and not the other. We can screw with semantic knowledge or procedural knowledge and not have it affect, say, digit span or, or navigation. We can interfere in phonological loop and you can still be navigating just fine. Right? When you're on your way home and you're walking, you're using visual spatial sketch pad. Where have I been? Where am I going? Where have I been? If someone starts to have a really complicated conversation with you about something really uh, deep or something, you don't suddenly, or very rarely, do you suddenly go, I'm lost. <laughs> and it doesn't happen. Or you don't go, I suddenly forgot how to walk. You might get distracted and miss your turn. You, that, that, that can happen. Yeah, sure, of course, that can happen. Like, oh, and let's interpret that as central executive. So putting so much processing power in this, this, this conversation you're having with somebody, right, that it screws everything up. And this is what happens, in fact. This is a nice explanation of what happens in distracted, distracted driving. Because driving involves what? It involves the, the procedural knowledge how to drive a car. It also involves visual spatial sketch pad, navigation. Right? Now you throw in holding a conversation. That's going to be a lot of that phonological loop and semantic knowledge. Usually you're activating all four systems at once and using them all at a very high level. Right? Central executive can't do all, can't, it's like, and then it would be like if it's your computer, now the fan starts spinning up because it's getting real hot. And you think, oh, I'm going to have a memory problem shortly. And then suddenly you bang into something. And one of the things you're trying to do here, semantic knowledge, how am I affecting the person's emotions, the person's, when I have a conversation with them on the phone? 
This is why having a conversation with somebody in the car is entirely different. You can take one look over and see if they realize what you just said was a joke. Right? You can look at one quick look and see if they understood the point you just made. You can't do that while you're talking on your hands-free douchebag device in your ear. <laughs> I'm sorry, the Bluetooth thing in your ear. <clears throat> right? You can't. It's a little easier if you've got the thing in your car that does it. It's still like automatically the whole car becomes a phone, like all cars do now. That's a little bit better. You're still distracted, though. You're still distracted. And then there's the people. You ever watch these people that are texting as they're driving? Don't do that. First off, it's illegal, okay? And I hope you go to jail. There should be real fines for this, and I mean hundreds and thousands of dollars and have your car taken from you and perhaps your children. But I've heard too many people almost hit me as I'm walking along the street. Yeah. In my kid's school, you know? You're standing here waiting for care of my son, and there's some twit who's driving in there texting at this, or a woman who reads her Kindle while she's driving. Then she parks, by the way, I'm just going to throw this out there. Then she parks in a non-parking spot, just on the road, entrance to the thing. Yeah. Look, you can park anywhere you want. She's like, she's a law unto herself. <laughs> I was thinking maybe about just going and, and, you know, peeing on her front porch and saying, I'm sorry, I thought we could do anything anywhere we wanted to now. I thought this was a toilet. <laughs> so I just thought I'd throw that out there. But if you've seen me or my wife complaining about this person on, on Facebook, it's this, that's the person. She also reads her Kindle. And I just want to... We can dissociate these things, they're separate systems, but central executives still have to be saying, do this, do that, do this. And when, it's, when you're doing everything at a high level, something's going to suffer. And I don't want you to be driving a 4,000-pound box of steel at me when you're distracted. No, no, I'm going to drive better when I text, you know. Have a couple of drinks, too. So the central executive says, now do this, now do that, now do this. It's, it's making decisions. It's, again, like the CPU saying, we're going to do this task, then this task, then this task. See, humans actually can't multitask. Okay, that's a complete crock. That are you ah, multitasking is bullshit. You can't. There's a small... Vanishingly small percentage of people that actually can do two things at once as well as they can do either of those things separately. But it's an exceedingly small number of people, and it's very rare. And if you think you can, chances are you don't. Because most of us can't. Temporal lobe damage can screw with the central exact. So do we know when these things are in your brain? We don't, but we do know that temporal lobe damage can make hurts functioning of all these different parts of working memory, of visual spatial sketchpad, phonological loop, semantic knowledge, procedural knowledge. And there's a lot of things that are disorders of, of executive functioning, or of thought as being that. When you think about uh, autism, it's thought of this way. Uh, ADHD is thought of this way. Right? Okay. So then I'm sitting here extolling the virtues and the wonders of the central executive in this multi uh, modal model of working memory. Now I've got some problems with it. Okay, there's a central executive. I buy that actually. I, you know, there's enough stuff. Sure. Who controls the second? Who, who runs the central executive? How's that work? Deus ex machina. You know, is there a little guy in there pulling levers, pushing buttons? Maybe he's more of a minority report guy. He's doing things like this, and he's touching things. And if it is minority report, Tom Cruise is small enough to fit inside most of our heads. <laughs> but it's a ghost in the machine a little bit. That's what Deus Ex Machina means. Um, so it's like, yeah, I kind of like it because it, the, it explains a lot of data. But I don't know. These are problems with it. They aren't insoluble problems. We can find how this thing works. That'll be figured out. Um, how does it know when to switch tasks? We can fi That'll be figured out. I'm saying right now, those are potential problems with the model. 
And this is done, by the way, of course, completely unconsciously, isn't it? You're not aware that your memory works like this, your short-term memory works like this at all. But it really seems to. The model does a nice job explaining the data, so I can't argue with it that way. But whenever I hear there's something controlling something, I want to know who watches the watcher, you know? It's well, it's like that. It's not a, no, it's not a like that kind of argument. So it becomes this sort of, it becomes a philosophical argument, which actually isn't very useful. But I, I get uncomfortable with this with this model because of that, because I can't get to the next step. Um, the neuroscience part of me isn't uncomfortable with it at all. It doesn't bother me in the least. The sort of thinking human part of me has a problem with it, like like logically or. Yeah, logically, that's the best way to put it. There's a lot of things that are counterintuitive about how we process stuff. And I don't sit there saying, well, then how does the different, the different layers of visual cortex know how to process visual uh, input? They just do. It doesn't bother me the least. I haven't seen beautiful data of different layers of parts of temporal lobe doing this. And that's probably the only thing holding me back from thinking this is the greatest thing in the history. Well, that's a little strong. You know, winning World War II was good. Um, I'm not sure what paper it was that I was reading. They were talking about the central executive functions and the non-central executive functions and how they kind of like work in parallel with each other. Yeah, they, they kind of have to. I just thought maybe that's how they know which, what should be doing what. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, this thing has to be, it's thought of as an independent agent. It's a free agent. It's on its own doing this. Something has to be controlled. That's, but that's just a logical part of it. Like I said, there's nothing telling. We, I can tell you right now. I told you last year exactly how the layers one to five encode vision. It's so cool and beautiful. And not once did I say, but how does it know that? Because <laughs> it didn't bother me because I, I can explain all the data with wet neuroscience and imaging. I can't do that here. That'll come. So I, I think I have a problem with this philosophically that's, that's actually, I'm kind of uncomfortable having a problem because it's kind of a silly problem for me. But I'm loaded with silly problems, many of them personal. All right, some conclusions. Uh, Short-term working memory is an active process. It's not passive. Act as in Schiffer thought of as being, stuff comes in, and it goes over here or it doesn't. It's, it's an active process. We have different faculties. So we have semantic knowledge, procedural knowledge, visual-spatial sketch pad, phonological loop, uh, loop. Run, notice how I did, by the way, uh, my acoustic error there. I said group instead of loop. The central executor runs it. I don't like that part of it, actually. I think the idea of those four is great. The central executive kind of bugs me, except that we can talk about disorders of executive functioning and the central executive, but we see them. So it's a weak idea philosophically, sort of, or model-wise. To me. To me. If you don't think, I don't care if you don't think it's a that's great. You think whatever you want. That's it's something like I think it's a little bit of an odd idea. But frankly, we have other things like that in our in cognition and shouldn't surprise us that they explain data and make people happy. So for me that's a totally personal thing and it doesn't really matter a great deal, but I think it's a little weak because there is evidence there. I guess I just want to see brains. Which is a which is a really bad uh, bias for you to have. All right. Question about this stuff for a talking test. You were gone. If you could measure our relationship by TV, it was two episodes long. Like some kind of sitcom, ah, yeah. And I can hear the laugh track. Cause you said you would love me, and I believe you. Guess that makes me the ass. Well, ha ha. Then you woke up. And you thought, what's your name? Is it the lighting? Cause I swear I've never seen you before But then again they all look the same As they run out the door And then we cut to a flashback scene With me on North Bay Conversation pouring out the point
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.